identity, the Beloved. Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the Sermon of the First Sunday of Epiphany, January 10th, 2020, from Christ Church, Jerusalem. The road that Jesus traveled from his immersion in the Jordan to Golgotha was fraught with opposition. He was hindered by Satan, by the religious and political authorities, and even by his own disciples, who were blinded and motivated by self-interest. Jesus overcame these trials, in part due to his unshakable identity as the Beloved with whom the Father was well pleased. Rev. David Pelegi tells us that knowing our identity as Beloved in the Messiah gives us the same resources in times of testing. Due to technical issues caused by the latest pandemic lockdown, the audio quality will be a bit different today. Thank you for your grace. We pray that the Lord is sustaining you through this time. Now, on to the lectionary readings. Now, the first reading from the beginning comes from Genesis chapter 1, the first five verses. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, and there was morning the first day. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. Second reading is Psalm 29, a psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And all his temple, and all in his temple cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. And the gospel portion for the first Sunday after the Epiphany is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 4 to 11. The good news, according to Mark. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. 
And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, pray as we consider the passage uh, appointed to us for this day in the gospel. So, Father in heaven, we pray that as you spoke to your son Jesus, that uh, you would speak to us as you have spoken to the prophets, spoken to Moses, that uh, we would hear your voice today and we would uh, be attentive or to your call and what you have to say to each one of us. We pray that that voice, which will be confirmed by Scripture, will indeed be powerful and that it will bring life and bring light uh, as it did in the beginning and as you promise it will through your Son, Jesus the Messiah. Amen. So the, the feast for today which is the first Sunday in the season of Epiphany, is the Sunday that remembers the baptism of Jesus, or you could say the immersion of Jesus uh, as witnessed by uh, John the Baptist. And uh, it's a very important feast day uh, in the Christian world. But naturally, it raises a, a huge number of questions. And perhaps question number one or big conundrum number one that many Christians ask, if John was um, baptizing for the forgiveness of sins, why is it that Jesus uh, went out into the wilderness and was immersed, you might say, under John's authority or, uh, again, with uh, John the Baptist as a witness? This, again, causes pastors all kinds of uh, difficulties. But we do know something perhaps now in the last few decades, or, or we understand something now that we didn't perhaps in uh, earlier times. That is, is that uh, now many scholars and uh, students of the Bible, historians as well, understand John's baptism and his movement as one that was calling not only Israel to repentance, but also calling people to come out and to repent on behalf of Israel as a way of preparing for the Messiah. And here we see this um, very um, uh, biblical paradigm that connects repentance uh, with messianic expectation, something that we see through the prophets and, uh, of course, in the New Testament itself. And many in Israel believe that in order to prepare for the Messiah, there must be national repentance. So Jesus was not necessarily going out uh, and repenting of his sin, but calling on God to have mercy on Israel 
and uh, immersing himself as a way of showing that God would cleanse Israel of its sins and send the Holy Spirit. I think it's a lot. I think it's certainly more understandable to uh, see the baptism of John in this light. I think also that paradigm, though, uh, should not be easily dismissed. Mark's gospel, as we all know, opens with these words. These are words that, again, I think are very important. And it says, Jesus came preaching a message of saying, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news, right? So again, repentance and the the idea of his kingship and his messiahship are uh, intrinsically linked together. But in our passage, we have the spirit, of course, is given to Jesus. It's not simply his uh, ritual immersion, but um, it is... um, the spirit uh, uh, descends upon Jesus, empowers Jesus, and that same spirit is going to drive Jesus into the wilderness. This because we read the following. It says that once the spirit sent him out into the desert, that word in Greek is very strong. Virtually, it means it drove him out into the desert. Jesus is going to be tested in the desert. Uh, no differently than all the great, you might say, saints of the Bible, or even perhaps some of the small saints of the Bible. But very often, before God gives gives anyone responsibility or even authority in his kingdom, or gives them a ministry, you might say, that they have to be tested. And uh, that test, of course, you know, through the Bible, happens to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, Joshua, Moses, of course, let's not forget him. In addition, David, Elijah, and of course, many more. And uh, the sages of Israel based uh, this understanding on Psalm 11, verse 5, which says, the Lord tests the righteous. The Lord tests the righteous. And Jesus was tested as well. I don't think being human, it was automatic or it was a given that he would pass the test. He himself had to uh, endure and had to be faithful. Now, why why would Jesus need to be tested? Well, first of all, he identifies with us and we as human beings must pass through many tests, you know, uh, in this lifetime. And uh, if we read Deuteronomy chapter 8, we find that tests sometimes are a, uh, a discipline from the Lord. But uh, other times the test, the, the trial that God puts us through, uh, is there really to expose our innermost motivations, you know, our real values, the attachments that we have, what we really attach to, and our loyalties. Certainly, I think this was true in the case of Jesus. Now, Jesus, like again, like the biblical pattern, isn't only tested once. And in Mark's gospel, it is a, an amazing, you might say, a series of hindrances or hurdles or even tests that uh, Jesus, you know, must overcome. First, of course, he is, we read in our passage, he's tested by the devil. And then we get this slight hint that he's in the wilderness with the wild animals, meaning he's in a place of danger where he obviously, obviously 
is a test as well, and we must trust God since he was not walking around the wilderness with a 410 over and under. And then he's tested by, uh, or tested many times uh, throughout the story that Mark gives to us. He's uh, tested by the religious authorities, different kinds, different different streams of uh, different movements. They're going to somehow test him or, or try to hinder him. He's tested by the political authorities, because in Mark's gospel, we have the only mention of Herodians. He's tempted by demonic spirits, not just Satan himself. And ironically, his biggest opposition, you might say, his biggest, you might call it a headache, maybe that's the, the wrong word, his hardest testing comes from his own disciples from his uh, own students. They are blind throughout. Uh, They simply just do not get what Jesus is trying to do. Uh, They're very shallow in their understanding, even though they're seeing miracles and uh, hearing Jesus teach. They're motivated by self-interest. They don't quite see, certainly don't see or don't understand the, the, the kingdom of heaven. And so opposition, you might say, or difficulty comes from his own community. And perhaps, well, we can certainly say that this is probably true for us, is it not? That uh, it's very easy sometimes to say, I oppose the political system. It's very easy to claim the name of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. And uh, let's say it's easier to fight off the opposition. Uh, Sometimes we can thumb our nose at religious authorities and say they're all wrong. and uh, some kind of, you know, uh, dissidence or rebellion against them. What's really hard oftentimes, again, is dealing with this, you might say, either misunderstanding or opposition or broken personalities, whatever we want to call it, really on our own team, in our own movement, in our own denomination, in our own office, in our own family. And Again, I was reflecting on this is, you know, the place that God so often brings us to the place of testing is the the very place, you know, where we will perhaps the most effective place where we will find healing and transformation. Yes, in relationships and oftentimes in relationships that may sometimes are enemies or people who oppose us, but oftentimes in relationships with those who are nearest and dearest to us. Uh, And of course, sometimes the pain and suffering that's involved in these relationships might be uh, at our own making. But I think I've seen over the years, talked to Daryl about many times, really is that, you know, there's really no spiritual maturity without emotional maturity. The the two are, are very interwoven. There's no spiritual maturity. I've never seen it. People don't have emotional maturity. Two are connected. They're interwoven. They can't uh, be separated. And if they can, certainly not very, very easy. And so these students and these disciples, as we'll be reading throughout the year, they're like the other opponents. They're putting hindrances in the way of Jesus. Yes, the journey uh, in this gospel is kind of a simple journey. Although, although there's a detour to the Galilee, the journey leads from the Jordan to Golgotha. Yes, that's the journey that Jesus, you know, should take. 
And uh, John the Baptist, using the words uh, of the prophet, he says, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Yes. So John, John is preparing the way for the Lord through this repentance. John's more than just announcing, you know, that Jesus is coming. I always like to say that John is more than just an Evite. He's uh, preparing the hearts of Israel, yes, with his call to repentance. And, of course, this uh, symbolic uh, immersion uh, in living water, the waters uh, of the Jordan, maybe the waters of the Yarmouk. But John, John is also there, uh, like the disciples should be there and so many others, to, be, to make that way easy for Jesus. Yes, what way? The way of the cross. Yes, to encourage Jesus or to support Jesus you know, as he fulfills his destiny, which is the cross and uh, the empty tomb. Unfortunately, in the gospel that we will be reading, Jesus doesn't get a lot of encouragement, at least outside encouragement. Okay. He, you know, John for a while is encouraging uh, the woman who anoints Jesus and his feet at the house of Simon the leper uh, in Mark 14. I think she's an encouragement. Maybe the blind man who's healed on the way out of Jericho or the way actually the way into Jericho, who immediately jumps up and follows Jesus. Maybe some of the crowds, but again, those who should understand him the most, those who should be uh, the most supportive, yes, are, are actually nowhere to be found. We've mentioned this before. I think it's worth uh, mentioning again, there's a very, very famous Jewish story about Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was a very famous Jewish sage uh, who made the unfortunate mistake of siding with Bar Kokhba, the rebel, in the year 132, and declaring that Bar Kokhba was the Messiah. The Romans caught up with him three years later, and they executed him in the Hippodrome at Caesarea. And some of you who have been on a shortage tour, you We've taken you to that Hippodrome, and we've even, uh, you know, mentioned that story. And, and Akiva dies a very faithful death with the words of the Shema on his lips. But what's uh, very um, notable to me is that his disciples are there at his execution, uh, and they're there to support him and encourage him. When Jesus is on the cross, his friends, his disciples, Yes, that should have had a relationship with him closer than their mother and father. That's the nature of Jewish discipleship in the first century. They're nowhere to be found, right? Again, they misunderstand or they they try to hinder, especially Peter of Caesarea Philippi. And so uh, we have to really acknowledge that when we uh, in our community, when we go through through whether it's difficulties or trials, or suffering. Sometimes it's hard to distinguish these things one from a, from another. You certainly need you certainly need more than ever more than ever the support of of each other. You should uh, take a lesson from the disciples and not uh, you know follow in their footsteps in the way they treat Jesus. Despite all this, yes, our gospel does have Jesus overcoming opposition. Overcoming misunderstanding, yes, pushing all hindrances out of the way. And he does go to the cross. And I think 
we, we need to acknowledge, and especially the book of Hebrews does, that uh, Jesus opens a new way for us. And he saves us not only by his death, very um, confident in that theological truth, but we need to remember that uh, Romans 5.10 talks about how we are saved by his life. And I think this passage um, in Hebrews 5 really brings home the point. It says, during the days of Jesus's life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from, from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, let's think back to Mark chapter one, yes. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, once comes to a place of maturity, and you might say a place of wholeness, completeness, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. The the connection there, of course, is that Jesus, who suffers like us, is a high priest in that he takes our concerns and our weaknesses, uh, empathizes with them, and intercedes with God the Father, you know, on our behalf. But Jesus does uh, indeed provide us shows us, you know, what uh, an obedient life uh, looks like, especially, again, in light of the um, opposition, misunderstanding, suffering that he has to endure. So I think it's fair enough to ask the question, why does, how is it that Jesus prevails? Many people would say, of course, because he was divine. But we also, we know that from the epistles, especially from Philippians, that Jesus leaves all that, quote unquote, divinity uh, in heaven. He comes as a human being, again, to, to, to live our life. And so he's not calling on some, you know, divine heavenly powers that we down here, you know, don't necessarily have. So the second answer to that might be, oh, he's full of the Holy Spirit. And that is certainly true. When he comes out out of the waters uh, of the Jordan River. He is filled with the Spirit. And uh, Luke's Gospel especially tells us after his trial and temptations in uh, the desert, after his time of fasting, he is full of the Holy Spirit as he begins uh, his ministry in Nazareth. So, yes, it is true that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. But I'd like to suggest something else. I think this is something that's very applicable uh, to us, uh, to all of us as believers. Yes. But before I suggest it, I'd like to just ask the question, what is the meaning of the voice or how does that voice, you know, speak to us today? The voice at the Jordan. Yes. And that voice, of course, is a voice that comes from heaven, but uh, what we call a bat kol. Uh, and the voice uh, is Father quoting scripture to the Son. So from Psalm 2 and from Isaiah 42, verse 1, you are my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Yes, you are my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And I think that is the key, yes, to what uh, enables Jesus to endure and to complete the task is that Jesus has an unshakable, yes, absolutely 
foundational belief, yes, or understanding, that's a better word, in his identity. Jesus knows who he is. That identity we see in Luke's gospel when Jesus uh, gets lost and is found teaching in the courts of the temple, or he's engaging the sages in the courts of the temple, that identity probably develops in Jesus, or he understands it at a very early age. But I have no doubt that it is confirmed and strengthened, yes, and you might say sealed, yes, so that there is no doubt in this, yes, at the Jordan River, at the baptism. When he goes into the water, he comes out of the water, and the Holy Spirit descends upon him. He's filled uh, with the Spirit, as we can be filled with the Spirit. Now, since this connects with identity, why does God pronounce these words? You are my son. Well, that's a fact, right? And whom I'm well pleased. Now, why is God well pleased with Jesus? And here we find a tension, I believe. And this tension is uh, something that, again, is applicable to us and in our walk with the Lord. The tension is that God is well pleased with Jesus because he's been sitting patiently in a place called Nazareth. He's been growing. He's been maturing. He's been obedient to God and to his parents. He's waiting for the right time. All of these might be called, in a way, spiritual disciplines. He's learning scripture, memorizing scripture, so on and so forth. Yes, and God is well pleased, yes, with the obedience of his son. But it equally can be that here's Jesus. He hasn't performed one miracle. He hasn't done one exorcism. He hasn't given a parable. He has not healed anyone. He hasn't died for, given his life as a ransom for many. There's, nobody's written hundreds of thousands of books about him. Pop songs or hymns. Nobody started a denomination with his name. Yeah, he's, he's, he hasn't done anything. And yet before he does a single thing, where there's any achievement or performance or act of obedience, yes, God, his father, says, you are the beloved. Yeah, God loves him. Yes, and we see this, by the way, manifested, not especially in, in John's gospel in a way that we don't see it uh, here in the gospel of Mark, that God is pleased with Jesus. Yes. Um, even before, you know, there's one accomplishment. I think both are true in our lives as believers. On one hand, we are the beloved, and God does love us, yes, even when we have no achievements to our name, even when we are far away from him and have, you know, maybe uh, full of transgression or rebellion, that God the Father uh, loves us before we've done any good thing or any good deed or or perhaps uh, any good work. And I'm certainly reminded of the the verse in 1 John that we love him because he first loved us. And that's an important reality. And that reality, as we'll see in a minute, if it's not something that's secure within us, if it's something that we're anxious about or something that we're uncertain about, 
it will, in a way, affect the way in which we understand our identity. But secondly, whether it's in Proverbs 16 or it's uh, in uh, Colossians throughout the Bible, the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, uh, it, it talks about pleasing the Lord, living in a way that pleases him, yes, or that delights him. Uh, that's uh, by you know, being obedient. They don't really hear a lot of language about that. We tend to hear language about how God wants to please us and make us happy. But there's a, there is something reciprocal going on here. And yes, we need to live in a way that uh, pleases him and brings uh, uh, honor and in glory to him. Now, I mentioned all this and especially the voice and the identity because recently I've been reading a little neurology, especially from Christians. And it's what I've, what they say, uh, and what was quite a revelation to me, is that I, our identity, where does our identity come from? How does our brain form identity? Our brain forms identity largely through attachment. Yes, whatever we're attached to, Whatever we really love, whatever brings us joy, yes, that will be the major influence, yes, of who we understand ourselves to be and how we live. And, you know, that identity, that shaping of the identity, uh, oftentimes is more important than what we believe. We're often wondering, many of us will wonder, well, why is it that Christians maybe have so many failures or, or they don't actually practice. We don't always uh, practice what we preach uh, or whatever that may be. And I think that, um, you know, that uh, neurology sometimes, especially when it's understood through the, the scripture, that neurology is certainly uh, the way our brain functions, you know, might help explain, yes, Jesus had an incredible, you might say, attachment. He had an incredible loyalty. He had an incredible love, you know, for his father. So much so that he can say in Mark 14, you know, when he's facing death, not my will, you know, but your, your will. And again, I don't mean to minimize doctrine Good teaching, it's all very important, and without good doctrine and good teaching, we can certainly become shipwrecked in our faith. But if we have good doctrine and good teaching, if we, in fact, if we love the doctrine, you know, if we love the church vision, if we love the 39 articles, whatever it may be, we're more attached to those things, yes, more connected to those things than we are to Jesus, well, it's going to be, you know, it's going, it's going to be a, a problem there. In fact, we as human beings, we get attached to all kinds of things, even uh, as Christians. And um, these attachments might be able, might certainly might cause, uh, no, they do cause conflict, right? We have, as I said, many, many get attached to a vision, a ministry vision, or get attached to a church or a denomination. Uh, others get attached to technology. Uh, some get it, many people around the world, especially in the 20th century, got attached to an ideology, not to God himself, right? 
but to an ideology or a political movement or a nation state. And I can guarantee that if our first and foremost attachment is to a nation state okay, or to a political ideology of some kind or another, we will always end up disappointed. Yes? That ideology will fail us. It will disappoint us. If we're attached to a vision, especially ministry vision, it will end up burning us out more often than not, then disappointing us. If we're attached to a football team, you know, our football team is eventually going to lose and to go into relegation, like Newcastle United. And uh, so we, you know, whatever we set our hearts, you know, to, yeah, that, that first, you might say that, that intense love, that loyalty, again, will disappoint us. Uh, and the other thing that was kind of impressed me in all of this neurological research was that uh, identity has to be created with joy. That's how the brain responds. And so if what we identify with or connect with doesn't bring us joy, then we won't have the strongest identity. And finally, uh, the brain really works kind of in relationship and community and families and groups. And it looks for identity, yes, uh, in a group. And it wants to imitate, yes, and this is well known, you know, we want to imitate, follow or to, or to copy, yes, uh, somebody else. That's how we shape, this is how the, this identity uh, gets shaped. And so I think the challenge for us, yes, is really um, uh, one of asking the question, you know, what are we attached to? What is our deepest loyalty? Does that, is that loyalty? Yes. Is it God himself and his son, uh, Jesus? Or is it, you know, our family? And of course, it is important to be attached to a family and it's important Equally important to be attached to the believing community. By the way, I think the reason Jesus goes to the cross is not simply because of his attachment to God. I believe that he has this deep attachment to the disciples and to each one of us. As uh, big a failure as those disciples were, he doesn't fire them. He doesn't replace them. He doesn't uh, get rid of them. And after his resurrection, he he, rest, he restores uh, the relationship, even though they were disloyal to him and cowardly. So it's, it is important that uh, these um, attachments, yes, are first and foremost, you know, in a joyful relationship with God, God himself. So our attachments uh, will determine our identity. And again, I think Jesus himself understands that identity. Uh, he's unshakable in that identity. And despite all the human, you might say, again, opposition, all the discouragement that he may have suffered, he's still uh, that, uh, that identity and that desire to please God enables him you know, to, to, go to, to go to the cross. The question is, how do we get an identity? And I think it comes first and foremost like we read in the gospel and in the passage in Genesis, we have to listen to the voice of the Lord. We have to allow God to speak to us, I think as a heavenly father, and say to each one of us, we are the beloved. 
in us he is well pleased, yes, before we do any good work. And yet, of course, he's going to expect a response from us and uh, want us to please him. Perhaps it sounds paradoxical, but he's going to want us to please him by living uh, lives of holiness. So we have to listen to that voice. That voice comes through scripture. It will never contradict scripture. It isn't perhaps above scripture himself. It will confirm, yes, uh, what we read uh, in the text. That God, being a good heavenly father, wants through his son, Jesus the Messiah, to adopt us into uh, his family and to spend time in his presence. Yes, uh, again, being uh, firm, having that identity strengthened. And, um, you know, the joy that uh, uh, comes uh, knowing uh, that, you might say, affirmation or that attachment with God himself first and foremost. Sometimes we'll have to break our idols. There are things that compete for our uh, attention uh, or can compete for our attachment. And uh, those things might have to be smashed. I'd just like to end with the, with the Shema. And the Shema to me, as we recited earlier, does indeed show us what attachment uh, is really like and what it consists of. And uh, the Shema, of course, is this oath of loyalty that Jewish people take twice a day to affirm their uh, loyalty to the king. And of course, it is a uh, loyalty that's not based on fear, as you know, oftentimes we have a relationship with the Lord that. Uh, is based on the fear of punishment or shame itself. But again, as neurology has shown that love and attachment are much more powerful. And of course, we know that from the scripture itself, especially from the epistle of 1 John. But uh, in the Shema, which is again recited twice a day, we make this declaration. Yes, yes that God is God alone, that we're not talking about his nature or uh, his internal composition, so to speak, we're saying and declaring that there are no other gods and that we're going to love him with all of our heart. Um, Jewish commentators in the first century, and I, I have no doubt, I think I can prove that Jesus himself agrees with this understanding, that to love God with all of our heart means that we love him with all of our emotions, yes, all of our desires, all of the things, you know, that uh, we really love, like uh, chocolate cake or the wrong kind of lifestyle, meaning we're going to restrain ourselves from those things. Uh, with our intellectual capabilities, yes, our, our, um, our talents, whatever God has given to us, you know, our will, our mind, our emotions, that we love him with our physical bodies meaning that first and foremost, that our bodies will not only glorify God in flesh, but also that we may be called upon to give our lives for him. And that we love him with all of our might, which is under Meodecha, which is understood to be to love him with all of our finances uh, and resources. And uh, it's this twice a day, you might say, oath of loyalty or declaration, a confession in which not only do we confess these things to God, but we listen to these words of scripture 
and allow God to speak to us as that not only does he love us, but he expects us to love him in return and to have, you know, our deepest attachments as connected to him. That, those attachments will determine our identity. Our identity, if it's strong in the Lord, will be able to overcome virtually all the temptations that are put before us, criticism and the persecution that we may get from the devil, criticism and persecution that we may get from our culture, as well as, you know, that brokenness inside of us that is always somehow trying to take us off the path. So here's a time for each of us to think about the baptism of Jesus and to ensure that the Lord has strengthened our identity. So it becomes more important than our culture, more important than our family traditions, more important than our favorite television show or favorite football or our political party or our national anthem. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the challenge of identity. We know that we are made in your image and that our identity should first and foremost be in Jesus the Messiah above all things. We pray that you will enable us again to be loyal, yes, to be attached, Lord, to have those right values, and most of all, the right relationship with you. And we ask these things, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus. Strengthen your people, we pray, and strengthen each one of us. Amen. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Sermons can also be found on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings, please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristchurchJerusalem.org. Blessings from the City of the Great King.